like to invite you to open the scriptures to Luke chapter 12 as we continue our worship this morning. As we continue turning our eyes to Jesus, one of the ways we do that is we consider his word. We turn our hearts and our minds and our attention to exactly what Jesus says to us. Knowing who he is as the son of God, knowing what it is he has done on our behalf, dying and rising again, knowing that he is coming back. His words are life for us. And there's authority and truth that we need to hear this morning. So Luke chapter 12, our text this morning will be verse 35 through 48. People have various attitudes towards the doctrine of eschatology. Some of you know what that word means. If you don't, eschatology simply refers to the study of the last things. It's the doctrine of the return of Christ and the coming of the kingdom and everything that will take place in the age to come. Some people stay away from this doctrine. Some people feel uncomfortable with eschatology. It intimidates them or perhaps it confuses them. Perhaps they become discouraged when they come to find that different Christians have different views and it's a very complex doctrine to try to figure out all the details. And so they think, well, if it's that difficult, it must not be that important for somebody like me. Some people stay away from eschatology. Other, people's obsess, other people obsess over eschatology. It becomes their favorite doctrine. It becomes almost a, a hobby to explore all the different permutations of how people explain the, the complex number of events that will play out at the end of the age. I don't know what your attitude is towards the end times. I don't know what your view is of eschatology. But I do know that every believer needs to have a firm grasp on eschatological truth. You may not become finely tuned in all the details, and that's fine, although we should all aspire to grow in our knowledge, but you do need a firm grasp on what I like to call the load-bearing walls of the doctrine of eschatology. You know what that term load-bearing walls means? If you're, you know, there's certain walls in a house you can knock down and you can move and you can do without. There's other walls that if you knock them out, the whole house comes down. There's a lot of different truths connected to the doctrine of eschatology, but there are a few that are so central, so important, that every Christian must have them in the right place. Jesus brings up in our text today one of those load-bearing walls, the central eschatological reality, which is the coming of the Son of Man, a great day in which the kingdom will be given to Christ in which judgment will be rendered against the enemies of God, and a day in which the saints will be vindicated and rewarded. The return of Christ is a load-bearing wall in our doctrine of eschatology. And in our text today, Jesus doesn't really answer questions about the details, perhaps even questions we might be very interested in, even important questions. Rather, in our text today, Jesus' concern with eschatology is highly practical, It's highly practical. A proper expectation of the return of our master ought to have a profound effect upon our lives. Let's read our text, and you will see what I'm talking about. We'll pray together. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Jesus says, Stay dressed for action, and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. 
But if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required." And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. Lord Jesus, as we listen to your words this morning, I pray that you would help us to embrace our role, our identity as servants of Christ, that we would respond to you as our master, that we would heed your instruction. Lord, give us the right attitude, the right perspective on your return, one that would produce good fruit in our lives. I pray that this text would compel us to live as you desire that it would encourage us with its promises, that it would sober us with its warnings, and that we might leave from here better equipped to serve you and seek your kingdom. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Throughout Luke chapter 12, Jesus has been teaching us that our hearts need to be oriented towards things that really matter. He warns us against covetousness. He encourages us not to be anxious and instead urges us to seek the kingdom. If you look right before our text in verse 31, Jesus says, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. This is to be the priority and the focus of those who follow Christ. The kingdom is a reality that is now in a spiritual sense. We are citizens of this kingdom. We live according to the ethics of Christ's kingdom. We belong to the church, which is a sort of outpost or an embassy of the kingdom, But the kingdom, biblically speaking, is predominantly a future reality, something that hinges on the return of Christ, which really brings to culmination the the kingdom in power. And so Jesus' point this morning, as he speaks to those who are called to seek the kingdom, is that seeking the kingdom of God requires anticipating the return of Christ. That's the central point of this Text. If we're going to seek the kingdom of God, it requires of us that we anticipate the return of Christ. And in this text, Jesus lays out two ways that anticipating Christ's return will actually impact how we live. Two, two things that, that our view of Christ's return should drive us to do and to be. And the first we find in verse 35 through 40. Number one, anticipating the return of Christ produces a spirit of readiness. If you're anticipating Christ's return and you have a proper heart that is oriented towards that eschatological reality, it ought to produce in you a spirit 
of readiness. Jesus begins here with a series of imperatives, instructions, commands, in which the the you that is understood here is actually emphatic in the Greek language. See it in verse 35. ESV says, stay dressed for action, but the you is emphatic. He's saying, you stay dressed for action, and you keep your lamps burning. In contrast to the covetous, in contrast to the anxious, in contrast to the pagan nations that seek after the things of the world, disciples of Jesus are to be marked by a very different concern. He says, stay dressed for action, verse 35. Some translations render this, gird up your loins, great biblical phrase. And it refers to what someone would do in the first century if they were preparing for work or preparing for battle or preparing for a journey. They would take the the long robes that that they wore, according to custom, roll them up and tuck them into their belts, get them out of the way. The modern equivalent to this statement would be lace those shoes up tight, roll up your sleeves, and get ready for the action. That's what Jesus is saying to them. And this instruction to gird up their loins would have had special significance for the children of Israel because this was associated not only with day-to-day work, but also with a major event in their history, with the Exodus. Next is chapter 12, verse 11. God gives instructions through Moses to the children of Israel regarding the first Passover. And he says, Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Passover commemorated that awesome and sober night when the firstborn of Egypt were slain. It was the final plague. That day was a day of deliverance for Israel, and it was a day of hasty exit from the land of their slavery. So Jesus is telling his disciples that they need to be ready because another great day of deliverance, another great day of both judgment and salvation is coming, and they need to be prepared. He says, gird up your loins. To this he adds, keep your lamps Burning. This refers to the oil, uh, the oil lamps that needed to be attended. The oil would burn down. It needed to be refilled. If the light went out, you wouldn't be able to see. You'd be in the dark, which renders you pretty useless for doing anything, right? This exhortation indicates to Jesus' disciples that they are to stay vigilant, that they are to stay on the clock, that they are to be on duty around the clock 24-7. So Jesus says, be ready, gird up your loins, be vigilant, keep the lamps lit. And then he illustrates his concern with this sort of parable, this illustration. He says, be like men, verse 36, who are waiting for their master. Waiting for their master. And the image here is of a master who's gone in a feast. Verse 36, be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Wedding feasts in those days could last up to a whole week, but it didn't always last a whole week. So remember one of Jesus's first miracles, he was at a wedding where they ran out of wine. If Jesus hadn't produced more wine, that probably would have ended the marriage celebration. Well, the party's over on day three because we ran out of supplies. So the the theoretical servants in in this story, they wouldn't know if their master was gone a day or two or five, six, seven days. And when he did return, they didn't know if that would be at 10.30 in the morning or if it would be 8 o'clock at night or perhaps late into the night, into the early morning. It's not like he could send them a text message and say, on my way. So they had to stay ready if they were going to effectively serve their master. 
so that when he returned, they would be able to open the door and unlock the gate for him so they could fulfill their duties as servants. And Jesus says he wants his servants to be like that, to be waiting for him, watching for him, ready to receive him when he comes. And this exhortation comes with a promise of blessing. And this is very exciting. Look in verse 37. He says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline, recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The Romans would divide the night into four periods or four watches, starting at 6 p.m. and ending at 6 a.m. But the Jewish people typically divided the night into three watches between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. So if you're awake in the second or third watch, that's the graveyard shift. That means you're pulling an all-nighter. And Jesus says the blessing for such servants is that they will be honored, they will be ministered to, served by the master. This is a twist in the parable. This is a reversal that likely would have shocked Jesus' listeners. A master waiting on and ministering to his servants. This was almost unthinkable. Yet this is precisely the blessing that comes to those that serve Christ. Jesus served us in his incarnation. Philippians tells us he took on the form of a servant. He laid down his life to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus illustrated this powerfully in John 13 as he actually washed his disciples' feet. But Jesus, listen, is not done serving. He serves us today, in fact, as our great high priest. He's serving us right now as our advocate before the Father, as our mediator, as he pleads our case, as he prays for us. Jesus didn't stop serving when he ascended into heaven. And he's not done serving. He will serve us one day in the future in the kingdom. And what Revelation 19 calls the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus uses this meal imagery here in this parable as he describes the master dressing himself for service and having them recline at table. Jesus will speak to this image again in Luke chapter 13, verse 29, when he says, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. There is imagery of a feast and a celebration. The joy and the rest of that is something we anticipate in the kingdom. And Jesus says, listen, those who serve well, those whom the master finds ready, the master himself will serve them at that meal. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever meditated on the fact that Jesus will serve his servants in the kingdom? This is a tremendous blessing, and Jesus offers it as a motive to his servants now. He says, be ready, be watchful, because you have a chance to experience this kind of blessing from the master. But there's a warning as well in verse 39. He says, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. The parable sort of switches metaphors here. It's no longer talking about a feast. 
He's now talking about an empty house that gets broken into. He shows us the negative side of things. And the, the term for breaking in here means to dig through the, the earthen wall. When you build a house out of mud bricks, those things are a little bit softer than concrete. So to break in, you could dig through a portion of the wall. And they didn't have alarm systems in those days. Now, Jesus reasons with them that, listen, if the master had known when this was going to happen, he would have been better prepared. If you, for example, caught wind that someone was planning to break into your house today, if you learned that someone was planning to rob you while you were gone at church, what would you have done? Most of you likely would have called the police and filed a report. Some of you, because I know you, would have instead chosen to simply wait in the living room to give them a warm greeting as they entered your house. (laughs) But the point is, you would have done something because you would have been ready. You would not have been caught off guard. Jesus says, you also, verse 40, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus is no longer speaking here with parables or metaphors. He's talking about reality. The Son of Man is coming, and he is coming at an hour you do not expect, so you better be ready. When we find these references to the Son of Man and his coming in the New Testament, we should think of Daniel chapter 7, which is the prophetic background for these statements. In Daniel 7, 13, he writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus reminds his disciples that the Son of Man is coming. This great eschatological event is pending, and you don't know when. Therefore, they need to be ready. And this is where we ask the question, so what does it mean to be ready for his coming? What does that actually look like? Because if it's so important, we better make sure we're doing it. Well, I think Luke 18 verse 8 actually helps us understand what Jesus is after here. In Luke chapter 18 verse 8, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, so it's the same event he's talking about here. When the Son of Man comes, here's the crucial question. Will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Or to put it in the terms of Luke chapter 12, when the Son of Man comes, will you be ready? I think Jesus is talking about the same thing in both of these passages. To be ready for Christ's coming is to possess saving faith and to be living, walking by faith. That's what it means to be ready. Possessing saving faith and living by faith. Why is it such a big deal if you're surprised by the return of Christ? Why does it matter if you're not ready? Well, because that reveals the condition of your heart. Your attitude towards Christ and his return is symptomatic of the presence or absence of genuine faith. You see, our affections reveal something about the state of our hearts, and they reveal something about our relationship to Christ. Maybe I can illustrate this by pointing to the wisdom of Solomon. Many of you are aware of that story in the Old Testament where Solomon, Israel's wisest king, is presented with a difficult case to judge. There's two women who both claim that the infant child belongs to them. They're arguing over whose baby it is. 
And Solomon very shrewdly says, well, I have an idea. Give me a sword. I'll cut the baby in half, and we'll split the difference, and everybody gets a little piece to share. Well, the mother who did not actually have a relationship with the child said, that's fine with me. But the mother who actually was related to this baby, who loved this baby, who cared deeply for this baby, immediately pled, no, please give her the child. I I would rather lose my baby than see him dead. And Solomon goes, that's the real mother. You see, our affections, it reveals the status of our relationship. And Jesus is saying, you need to be ready. If you're not ready, if you're surprised, if you're caught off guard by the return of Christ, if it does not move you, if it does not compel you, if his return means nothing to you, if the thought of Jesus coming back, potentially today, barely registers in your emotions, your thoughts, your level of enthusiasm, if it doesn't capture your attention, if his return doesn't stir your imagination, if his return does not, does not have any point of contact with your affections, then it brings into question whether you, you actually know him, whether or not you are his servant, whether or not he is your master. If we truly love Christ, if our hopes are set on him, if we're devoted to serving him, then his return will be precious to us. We will anticipate that day. And this readiness, Jesus says, is not something you turn on and off. It's something that's maintained at all times. Jesus emphasizes, be ready because you do not know the hour. By the way, if someone claims to know when Jesus is going to return, don't believe them. They're either deceived or they're lying. They're trying to sell you a book or a documentary or something. They want your money. Because Jesus says, no one knows. Mark 13, 32, Jesus says in that passage, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We do not know the timing of Christ's return, and we do not need to know. Jesus doesn't instruct us to speculate and try to figure it out. That's not the solution to not knowing when Jesus is returning. The solution to not knowing is simply to stay ready. He says, don't get caught unprepared. Don't lose focus and let the lamp go out. Don't fall asleep at your post. Don't let your house get broken into. Place your faith in Christ and walk by faith, looking daily, eagerly to his return, anticipating the return of Christ, produces in us a spirit of readiness. There's a second effect of anticipating the return of Christ. Number two, it also produces a commitment to faithfulness. A commitment to faithfulness. We see this in verse 41 through 48. Peter jumps in at this point to ask a clarifying question. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? It's a good question. Peter understood very clearly who the master in the story Jesus is telling represents. The master is clearly Jesus. Peter confessed back in Luke chapter 9 that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here he calls him Lord, kurios. He, he recognizes him as the master. It's like, okay, I know who the master is, but who does the servant language apply to? Are you talking about the 12 of us as apostles, as the ones you've chosen? Are you talking about anybody who follows you? Because there's this other big group of disciples who follow you around. Are you talking about people in general, like even the unbelievers, the scribes and the Pharisees? And Jesus doesn't answer this question immediately. He doesn't answer this question directly. He responds with more teaching. And he describes for Peter four types of servants. 
says, if you want to know more about the servants, let me explain. There's four different kinds of servants. There's one kind of servant that is faithful, and then three different categories of servants that Jesus says are not faithful. We find the positive example, the the faithful servant, the faithful wise manager in verse 42 through 44. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. What Jesus describes here in response to Peter's question is a steward, a high-ranking servant, someone who is tasked with administrating all the affairs of the estate while the master was away. He's a project manager. He's a vice president of operations. That's what he does. And his duties even include making sure that the lower-ranking servants were fed and supplied for their daily needs. He's a manager. He's a steward. And Jesus promises blessing for the faithful, wise steward who, when his master returns, when he shows up unannounced and unexpected, walks into the room and finds that that steward has been busy at work doing exactly what he is supposed to do. By the way, some people may misread the first parable about readiness, and they may think that we're simply supposed to sit around and stare into the sky and Try to watch for Jesus to come. But if that's what you think being ready means, you need to keep reading and see that Jesus actually wants us to be busy. He wants us to get busy doing the things that he has entrusted to us to do. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It's kind of funny. Years ago, I worked for a... um, a web development company. It was a very small business. And my boss, John, was close to my age. And it was a pretty laid-back work environment. And he said, hey, during March Madness, if you want to have some of the games pulled up on a secondary screen, feel free. And so we would do that. We would watch, we would watch um, some of the tournament, NCAA tournament games while we were working. It was possible to sort of listen and do both because of the nature of that job. But it was sort of funny. CBS Sports used to have this little button on their on their streaming uh, platform, and it said boss button. And if you click on the boss button, it would instantly mute the audio, and it would switch the screen to a big spreadsheet so it looked like you were working. Because not everybody has a boss like my boss, John, who said, yeah, you can watch games while you're at work. And we laugh at that, but it shows that we all know deep down inside that when the boss shows up, you don't want to be caught doing nothing. You want to be found faithful. You want to be found being productive and busy doing the things that are important and that matter. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. In answer to Peter's question, he says, you want to be found faithful when the master returns. This has great application for the apostles as they would be entrusted with the leadership of the church after Christ's departure. In fact, 1 Corinthians 4.1 says of the apostles, Paul speaking of himself included in the group, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Paul understood that he, along with the other apostles, were stewards of the mystery of God, servants of Christ that had been given a very prominent and important role in the kingdom. But I think this concept also has great application for pastors and elders and those who lead in the church. Titus 1.7 says that an overseer, referring to a pastor, a leader in the church, 
An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So it's not just the apostles that are stewards. It's leaders in the church today. I believe this concept of being a faithful steward also has application for husbands as you lead your wives, for parents as you raise your children, and for members in the church, for all believers as you use the gifts God has given you in the church. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So Peter wants to know who is the steward. And as the rest of scripture unfolds, it becomes clear we're all stewards to some degree. And what's the promise for those who discharge their duties faithfully, who serve faithfully? Again, Jesus promises more blessing. Look at the blessing here in verse 43 and 44. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. The faithful servant will be granted the honor and the privilege of even greater responsibility. Later in Luke chapter 22, Jesus will say this to his disciples. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. In that passage in Luke 22, Jesus captures both of these blessings that are laid out in, in our text, sitting at the table with Christ and reigning and ruling with Christ, being a part of his administration in the kingdom to come. That is a great blessing that is given to faithful servants. The kingdom of God is intrinsically hierarchical. Christ is at the top. He's the king. But there's a broad organization that Jesus says will be implemented in the kingdom. There's government, there's nations, there will be a full-blown administration of King Jesus, complete with delegated authority and delegated responsibilities for his servants. The apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging Israel. 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that we will judge angels, we'll have duties and responsibilities and authority in the kingdom. Revelation 2.26 says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. There's a great blessing that is given to those who serve well, who serve faithfully. There's a blessing of promotion and reward in the kingdom. But what about those who do not serve faithfully? Well, moving on from this first example of a faithful servant, Jesus now gives us the opposite He describes the wicked manager in verses 45 through 46. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Jesus describes someone here who does not serve his master, someone rather who seeks his own pleasure. Rather than supplying the needs of those in his care, this wicked servant abuses them. He is selfish. He is cruel, hedonistic, living for the moment, no thought of the future, serving only himself with no respect for his master. It's an ugly picture of a total abuse of authority misusing his position for his own selfish purposes. And he does it all because he thinks he can get away with it. He says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. There's some today who view the return of Christ this way. 
You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus said, I'm coming soon, and he hasn't yet. I'm not worried about it. How foolish that attitude is. This portrait of the wicked servant is an apt description of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The ones who, according to Luke eleven forty six, loaded people up with burdens hard to bear and did not even raise a finger to touch one of those burdens. This is an apt description of false prophets and false teachers who prey on God's people. The predatory shepherds that Paul describes in his warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Paul told the leaders of the church in Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Wicked servants who consume and abuse. In Jude verse 12 Jude derides these false teachers as shepherds feeding themselves. God is not just disappointed in such shepherds. He is angry with them. In Jeremiah 23, verse 1, God says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock And have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. That's a warning of judgment. And we see this judgment described vividly by Jesus in verse 46. For those who think that the New Testament is the gentle, loving God, and the Old Testament is the angry God, read verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and look at this judgment, he will cut him in pieces, dismember him, and put him with the unfaithful. This is a powerful image of justice. It's a powerful description of condemnation and total rejection of such a supposed servant. This language of cutting someone in pieces may have come as a shock to us, Well, it would have come to a shock to them as well, because I think it likely would have called to mind a very powerful image from the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find this story. I'm just going to read a portion of it to you. 1 Samuel 15 verse 1, Samuel says to Saul, the first king of Israel, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel. In opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt, the Amalekites were a people group who had afflicted the children of Israel. Sounds like shepherds consuming the sheep. Sounds like a wicked servant harming those he was supposed to care for. Here's God's instruction to Saul. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Comprehensive destruction for the Amalekites was God's judgment on them for their mistreatment and their abuse of the fledgling nation Israel. The infant nation was just fresh on its way out of of their slavery in Egypt on their way to the land of Canaan. And the wicked treatment of the Amalekites earned the just judgment of God. And Saul, the king Saul, was supposed to be God's instrument of that justice. And Saul partially obeyed. He went to war with the Amalekites But he didn't follow through. He violated God's word. He spared the king. 
and he spared some of the livestock. So Samuel, the prophet, when he shows up, after rebuking Saul for his unbelief, Samuel finishes the job. 1 Samuel 15, 32, Samuel says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. How does that story inform Jesus' words, his warning that the wicked servant will be cut in pieces? Jesus is indicating that those who should care for God's people, those who should serve the interests of Christ, but instead pervert their authority and power for their own selfish gain, he said they will be treated as the enemies of God. They will be devoted to destruction like Agag the king of the Amalekites. They will be put in the category that they belong in, not promoted in the kingdom, but instead cast out of the kingdom, placed with the unfaithful. The word that's translated here in the ESV as unfaithful could just as accurately be translated unbelieving. The word for faith and belief are the same word. They will be cast out. Jesus tells a very similar parable in Matthew 24, 50, and he says this, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's very clear what Jesus is talking about. An eternal judgment consigned to hell to suffer the just consequences of rebellion against God. Jesus says those supposed servants who act wickedly will be put in the category they belong in, the category of unbelievers, to receive the just judgment that they deserve. That's a sober warning. And Jesus says, this is what's going to take place at the return of the Son of Man. It will bring judgment for the unbelieving, judgment for the wicked ones. Keep in mind, Judas is listening to all of this. Keep in mind, the scribes and the Pharisees are present, hearing this warning. Jesus' words offer a sober warning of judgment. But what about those who are not so defiant? Because not everyone has betrayed Christ like Judas. Not everyone is like the scribes and the Pharisees accusing Jesus of being possessed by a demon. Not everyone is like the false teachers and the false prophets that prey on God's people. There's a lot of people out in the world who don't seem nearly so wicked. What about them? For, that, for these, Jesus says there is still a judgment though in varying degrees. He describes a second kind of unbeliever, one who you might call not a wicked servant, but a negligent servant. Verse 47, he says, and that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. This is someone who does not grossly violate the will of the master, like the wicked manager, but he does fail to obey. He fails to carry it out even though he knows better, even though he's fully aware of what it is that the master wants him to be doing. His fate is less severe. He's not cut in pieces, but there is still punishment. This servant will be held accountable for his failure to obey the master. James 4.17 says that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Listen, there are many people who hear the gospel there's many people, even some in this room, 
who are very aware of what Scripture teaches, very aware. You've heard of the Lordship of Christ. You've heard that the Bible teaches Jesus is going to return. But sadly, some who have this knowledge are indifferent, distracted, unmoved. For whatever reason, they do not believe in Christ and they do not serve him. Jesus says this is especially dangerous. There's a severe consequence that is coming. We ought to take heed, especially those of us who have had much exposure to the truth, perhaps those of you who have grown up in the church and you've heard these things. There's a measure of accountability for those who know yet fail to respond as they ought. There's another kind of servant that Jesus describes. We might not call him the negligent servant who knows and does not obey. He's one that we might call the ignorant servant, one who does not obey and doesn't even know what he's not obeying. Look in verse 47. Sorry, verse 48. Verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And then Jesus gives a principle. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Jesus says that even those who are unaware of what is required of them will still be held accountable by God. Some people may question why this servant deserves discipline at all. I mean, he didn't know what the will of the master was. But listen, a servant should make it his business to know the will of his master. We don't have an excuse to not know. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the very attributes of God are on display in creation. There is something that can be known about God just by virtue of being alive and awake. We're aware that he is glorious and that he deserves worship, that he is someone who is to be sought and to be known and to be feared and to be honored. Romans chapter 2 tells us that the law of God, namely the weight of his moral will, what is right and wrong, that we know what that is because it's on our conscience. It's actually written on our hearts. Paul concludes, therefore, those who do not believe are without excuse. J.C. Ryle comments, our very ignorance is part of our sin. This servant is still held, held accountable for his failure to serve the master because he ought to have known better. Nevertheless, there is a less severe consequence for this kind of sin, but it is still a consequence. Instead of a severe beating, he receives a light beating. And then Jesus summarizes with the principle, the reason that the wicked manager is cut in pieces, the reason that the negligent servant receives a severe beating, the reason that the ignorant servant receives a light beating is that God's justice, God's judgment is always appropriate. It is always fitting. This principle is on display elsewhere in Scripture as well, that there's various levels of accountability and judgment. We see it in the Old Testament law. In Numbers chapter 15, there's different punishments for, for a sin that is unintentional, a sin of ignorance, a sin that was a mistake. There's a sacrifice and forgiveness for that, but there's a different requirement for sin with a high hand, sin that is against knowledge, sin that is intentional. We see this in Luke chapter 10. We saw this a few weeks ago. As Jesus pronounces woes upon these unbelieving cities, cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, he said, woe to you. It's going to be better and easier for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you. 
because they saw Christ face to face. They heard the explicit teaching of the kingdom of God. They saw the miracles. Jesus said, if the men of Sodom and Gomorrah would have seen these miracles, they probably would have repented, but you didn't. We see here that there is a scale, that God's retribution, God's justice, God's wrath is always in perfect proportion, always in perfect measure, always fitting. So did Jesus answer Peter's question? Peter said, Lord, does this refer to us or are you talking about others? I think he did answer that question. What he's saying is that, listen, what I'm explaining about the return of the Son of Man and both the blessing and judgment that is at stake, it really applies to everyone. There's relevance here for the apostles. There is relevance and application for church leaders. There is, there is important truth here for those in various positions of responsibility, for both believers and also for unbelievers. The faithful will serve their master and receive his blessing. The unfaithful will experience his judgment. You know, when Jesus speaks in parable form like this, talking about things like the return of the Son of Man, the timing of the Son of Man, and how all this blessing and judgment falls out, it probably leaves you with some questions. And those are good questions, questions we could go to other texts to explore today. You might ask questions like, well, how does this statement about not knowing fit with other passages that talk about the signs of his return? What do these degrees of judgment actually look like? What responsibilities might we have in the kingdom? And we can ask all those questions, but for our purposes this morning, to focus on those things would actually be to miss the main point. The point that Jesus drives at is very simple. Seeking the kingdom of God requires that we anticipate his return. And if you anticipate his return, it will produce two things in you, a spirit of readiness and a commitment to faithfulness. No matter what your eschatological system, no matter what your level of understanding of all the details of the return of Christ, this much is clear. Jesus is coming back. We are to be ready for him, and that should affect how we live. This is a practical eschatology. So here's the pertinent question for us this morning. How do you and I live each day as if Jesus really could return at any moment? How do we practically live in a manner that is ready and faithful? That shouldn't be a strange question to our minds. I hope that's something you've thought about before. I hope it's something you think of often. How ought I live today because of this reality that Jesus is coming back soon? In closing, I just want to give three words of exhortation to you. You can just jot these down real quick. First of all, I think that this principle, this truth of Christ's return, speaks first of all to our mindset. Mindset. Let me encourage you to embrace your identity as a servant of the master. That is to be our mindset. Go through this text sometime and circle every time it says the word master and underline every time it says the word servant. You're gonna have a lot of markings on your page. This is a dominant theme that we are servants of Christ and Christ is the master. So do you see yourself as a servant of Christ? Because if you don't, if you don't have that mindset, you won't live in light of Christ's return. You have to have that mindset. Not that serving Jesus is something we do, but a servant of Christ is something I am. That's part of my identity. I've been bought with a price and I belong to Christ. I'm under his authority because he's my Lord 
I exist to serve him and glorify him. That needs to be part of your fundamental sense of identity. That's who you are, Christian. You are a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, the best master anyone could hope to have. And our position in his economy as servants, as slaves, is our greatest privilege. There's no greater joy than to belong to him and to serve him. Is that part of your mindset? It needs to be. It needs to be. For Christians, this identity of a servant is explicitly connected to the gospel that we believe in. We're not, we're not saved because we serve. We serve because we are saved. It has to be in that order. And if you've embraced the grace of Christ and recognized all that he's given you, that's going to fuel you to want to serve him. It won't be like, like some of you guys, sadly, and I, I have sympathy for you. It's a good thing that you go to work every day, but some of you hate your jobs. That's okay. You still go to work and make money. That's fine. But we as Christians should not hate our job of serving Christ. That's a joy and a delight to us when we realize what Christ has done for us. This is our response of gratitude and worship to Christ. He's the suffering servant who served us first. We gladly offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to him. So you have to have this mindset as you anticipate the return of Christ. If you view yourself as a servant and him as the master, that's going to help you live in the right way. But friend, if you're not a believer, if you've not believed the gospel, then you need to become a servant of Christ which means you need to embrace him as your master. Bow the knee to him. Recognize Christ as Lord. Confess your sin and believe that his death on the cross provides the forgiveness that you need. Only then will you be able to understand and perform his will. Only then will he accept your service. You need to be redeemed. You need to enter into a right relationship with Christ and be saved. So you don't serve in order to be saved. We serve because we have been saved. Cultivate that mindset, Christian, that you are a servant of Christ. Secondly, this truth speaks to our motives, not just to our mindset, but also our motives. If you want to live in light of Christ's return, embrace the promises that Jesus gives here. The reason that some of us struggle to, to be ready and some of us struggle to be faithful is because our motives are too weak. Again, this speaks to the heart. Consider the blessings that Jesus offers that he himself promises to serve us in the kingdom. It's almost embarrassing to say that, that Christ Jesus, the son of man, the son of God, the alpha and the omega, the one who is full of glory, who's the very image of the invisible God, that he would serve us. We can relate to Peter who says, Lord, why are you washing my feet? You ought to never do that. But Jesus says, this is how it needs to be. Have you meditated on Christ's service of you and his promise to bless you by blessing you and serving you in the kingdom? Have you meditated on the promise of reward that, that Christ will promote and entrust more responsibility in that age to those who serve him well in this age? Maybe you feel a little bit guilty thinking about promises of blessing, promises of reward, but Jesus offers us, offers us these things as motivations. Don't think that you're more holy than Jesus because you're going to find some motive to serve him that doesn't lean on these promises, that doesn't lean on these promises of blessing. We should receive this comfort and this encouragement, these motivations with open hands. Lay hold of them. 
We need the right mindset. We need the right motives. But a third word would be mission. We need the right mission. If you want to live in light of Christ's return, seek to discover and obey the will of your master. May it never be that we are servants who don't know what Jesus wants us to do. May it never be that we are servants who kind of know what Jesus wants us to do, but don't bother doing it. Seek to discover and obey the will of the master. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. That's to be our priority. So friend, are you anticipating his return? Are you ready? Are you faithful? Do you have the mindset of a servant? Do you lay hold of Christ's promises for your motives? Have you given yourself to his mission? Christ is coming soon, and my prayer is that this truth would prompt us to be ready and watchful as we faithfully give ourselves to serve our master, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would help us to embrace the incredible truth that Jesus is coming back at an hour we do not expect. I pray that you would help us to be ready, that we would believe in Christ, believe in the promise of his return, that we would walk by faith, eagerly anticipating and expecting that day. Lord, make us ready and make us faithful. Strengthen us by your spirit that we might give ourselves to the work of the ministry here, that we would be faithful to war against the flesh, faithful to pursue you, to know your will and understand it, that we might obey it, faithful to love our wives, faithful wives who love their husbands, faithful parents who shepherd their children, faithful church members who participate in laboring in this embassy of the kingdom of God, faithful ambassadors who proclaim the good news of the kingdom to those around us. Lord, make us a faithful people who are stirred up and motivated by your promises. Lord, help us to embrace the mindset of a servant. Forgive us for seeking to serve ourselves. Forgive us for that sinful tendency towards autonomy and independence and rebellion. May we be a people who submit ourselves gladly to the authority of our master. And Lord, we pray that you'd be glorified in this age as we eagerly await your return. Amen.